Storytelling has always been a crucial pillar of my life. It plays a crucial part in all of our lives. In many ways, the human experience is defined as a series of stories. As a journalist, it's my job to discover and unearth the most pressing and interesting stories and share them with people. Whenever I meet new people, I'm always curious which stories have most shaped their lives and how. For many of us, the most memorable and evocative tales live in the hallowed pages of books, for there's no medium more powerful than the human imagination. Books have a remarkable ability to draw us in, to connect us to one another, to educate and to entertain, to take us on journeys through love, pain, inspiration, and everywhere in between. In the information age, I believe there's still where we can best learn about the world beyond and within ourselves. I'm Hadith Al-Bustani, arts and culture editor at The National. Through my work, I have the privilege of exploring the realms of art, literature, film, music, theater, and more. I'd like to welcome you to season two of the Books of My Life podcast. In this new season, I sit down with influential figures from a striking array of fields to explore the books that have left the deepest imprints on their lives. They reveal the stories, characters, and ideas that most resonate with them and how they've shaped their values, beliefs, and careers. But before we start, Make sure to subscribe and follow Books of My Life on your favorite podcast app to get all the new episodes as soon as they come out. Storytellers come in all shapes and sizes. You have the Bedouin nomad, recounting tales of multi-generational feuds gone by. Indian mystics divining epics from the ether. Filmmakers like Peter Jackson bringing Tolkien's classics to life on screen. And then there's Jeffrey Archer. Suffice to say... Jeffrey Archer is a man whose reputation precedes him, one of the giants of popular fiction, starting with the blockbuster hit Cain and Abel. He's gone on to sell more than 275 million books, a fact that he's more than happy to repeatedly remind hapless interviewers of. But there's more to him than that. Once a member of parliament, he rose to the heights of deputy chairman of the British Conservative Party and even won the London mayoral election of 1999 only to be dragged down by a perjury scandal that saw him sentenced to prison for four years. Of course, following his stint behind bars, his prison diaries went on to become bestsellers, making him the only author to have had best-selling titles across fiction, non-fiction, and short stories. Although at first I feared we'd gotten off on the wrong foot, thankfully my tales of pre-Islamic Bedouin warrior poets piqued his interest enough to win him over. What ensued was a fascinating deep dive into the art of storytelling and the craft of writing. So how are you doing today? Fine, thank you. Um, could you tell us a, a little bit about your new book? Uh, because you haven't read it, you mean? No, just I think in case you give out... No, no, no I, people who say, will you tell us a little bit about your book, haven't read it, which is fine. Only 100 million people have. Why should you be among them? Am I teasing him? Yes. Well, for our, uh, for our listeners, it's a story haven't. of uh, William Warwick. It's a William Warwick novel. And on this occasion, William Warwick is in charge of Princess Diana's security. Okay. And what you have to do when you read the book, because I knew Princess Diana very well, she was a personal friend, uh, what you have to decide is if it's true or not. Right. And um, can I ask, going back, what are some of the the books that inspired you to, when you, before you ever started writing? Because I know you started writing a little bit later into your career. Correct. Um, what, was some, what was it that first inspired you to write? 
I think by mistake, I came to writing by mistake. Uh, I wanted to be a politician. When I left Oxford, uh, I joined the Greater London Council. I then went into Parliament at the age of 29, made a complete fool of myself and lost all my money. So came to writing with not a penny more, not a penny less, as uh, a mistake almost, Look at, while I was looking for a job. I didn't do very well. It sold 3,000 copies in hardback and then 25,000 in softback. And then I wrote a book called Cain and Abel, and the world changed overnight. That sold a million in the first week and has now sold 47 million copies. It's remarkable. And you've sold hundreds of millions of copies of your book. Yeah, I, they keep saying I've sold 275 million, uh, which is nice. Uh, who am I to argue with the publishers? <laughs> what do you? What did you consider some of the great um, examples of storytelling in literature growing up? Oh, oh, how interesting! Yes, um, Dickens is the natural double act because he can tell a story and he's a damn good writer. His characterizations—we all remember Oliver Twist. We all remember Mister Bumble. We all re- there are great characters all the way through his books that you mr mccorber you you go on the artful dodger you go on remembering and what a compliment now he had a slight advantage over us no television no radio no newspapers well very few Uh, today and it's now i speak as a man who's 82 years old it's a lot tougher now than it's ever been The young have so many outlets which they can, from playing games through to TikTok to Kindle, there's everything. It's much tougher now. Uh, But it's a good question. And I would say if you're listening carefully, coming right through to the present day, Stefan Zweig, S-W-E-I-G, a genius. That rare combination of a great writer and a great storyteller. Beware of pity is a masterpiece. So influenced in my youth by Dickens, certainly, and many others. I mean, look at Jane Austen. Jane Austen writes a story about four women who can't find a husband. That goes quite well. So she writes a story about three women who can't find a husband. That goes quite well. So she writes a story about two women who can't find a husband. That goes quite well. And then she writes Emma. Why do you turn the page? Because she's a great storyteller. And that's what divides her from the others. What do you think are the core skills or traits of a great storyteller as opposed to a great writer? I'm bound to say, that's a question I get all the time, as you might imagine. It's a God-given gift. I am not a countertenor. I am not a violinist. I am not a ballet dancer. I tell stories once upon a time and pray you'll turn the page. That's a gift. There are many great writers around. If you're well-educated and you're well-read, why shouldn't you be able to write? But to tell a story, that's something totally different. 
And storytelling is something that's been fundamental to humans since the dawn of humanity. Yes. And not necessarily with the pen. Mm. You might not be able to write your own name. It wouldn't mean you couldn't sit down and tell a story. The Irish, what a bunch they are. They can tell stories, and you're never sure they can write their own name. It's a, it's a gift, and heaven knows where it comes from. It's fascinating, actually. Even here, for example, in the Arabian Peninsula, um, there's, there's very much a, an oral history where people weren't literate for, oh. for, for many, many years. So, for example, going back to even before Islam, um, there was this beautiful tradition of Bedouin warrior poetry. And these Bedouin warriors were also beautiful Couldn't poets. Write. Exactly. How wonderful. And did that survive? So their work survived because there was also a certain role in society of these great poetry how, what, what was it, recitationists or recitals, uh-huh. and they would kind of memorize these poems and go out and masterfully to the next generation exactly. and that's carried on exactly yeah and how so many wonderful. of them were eventually written down i did not know that there's a great selection of odes that were considered so great that they were hung up in the kaaba um in mecca um, and i think they called the arabic term translates into the golden odes mm. but it's just really fascinating that Great storytelling will survive. We'll find a way oh, to yeah. survive. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And how do you think that? So in the course of your career, how do you think? Do you think st- storytelling in literature has changed? No. No, I do not. Uh, once upon a time, beginning, middle, and end, to quote Kipling, that hasn't changed. Now, of course, it's changed in the sense that we now have uh, books I don't like, uh, full of uh, bad language. and But what I say to, to people is that if you're a storyteller, you don't need any of that. You don't need violence. You don't need bad language. You don't need, you tell a good story. Don't worry. Jane Austen, you don't need it. But it's a very interesting question. Has it changed? No, I don't think so. I think of that simple gift uh, gone down from generation to generation uh, hasn't changed, but it the books are very different now. Two of the most successful books on earth at the moment. One is written by a woman, uh, and she's totally, literally almost taken over the market. But they're for 16, 17, and 18-year-old girls. And there's another one who it's violence. and, and So I'm not in that world. So there's, there's whole different worlds. Now, they're probably both good storytellers, but I'm at a level where it's very simple. I don't, I don't do that. Uh, I want to bring you in and hold on to you and strangle you. <laughs> well, and also it's, it's interesting going back to this idea of storytelling and being a gift, because if you look at all the kind of workshops and courses that are on storytelling, or perhaps maybe more on writing, um, to what extent do you think it is possible to learn that craft? Well, you, you fell into your own trap. You said writers mm, yes they're different animals okay yes and no you cannot pop into dubai and go to a store and say uh, give me a packet of storytelling please it no is the answer to your question yes but also one thing that's remarkable about your career is that you've had success with also with short stories and poetry as mm. well which is incre- not poetry no oh okay with, sorry with short stories so you've yeah. had incredible success i've with written short 92 stories. short stories you're quite right absolutely right 
I love short stories. As a child, um, I repeat boringly that I'm 82. As a child, a short story was very popular. There were many. I mean, the Scots Fitzgerald, Somerset Maugham, O. Henry, Maupassant, here uh, in India, R.K. Narayan. The short story was very popular. It's gone out of fashion. But I still write them, yes. And in terms of the, the art of telling storytelling through long form and then short form, uh, yes. when you read a short story, a really well-crafted short story, you never leave with a sense of incompletion. What is the art to yes, actually be able to do that? Point. It's a very good point. I think you know when you hear a short story, it's only 20 to 30 pages. I, you think, mind you, Cain and Abel, two men born on the same day, one with everything, one with nothing. They only meet once. It changes their whole life. 600 pages later. So you can, you can but then other, other, sometimes someone will give you a little vignette. They'll say, I got an amazing story to tell you, Jeff. And they think it's a novel. And they tell you their amazing story. And the amazing story is a wonderful vignette, a little thing that happened to them that hasn't happened to other people. And I've had 92 of those. I've written 92 short stories. I would say of the 92, 60 were talking to people like you, either of you, and you saying, Jeffrey, I'd like to tell you about something that happened to me once when I fell off a bus. Wait, tell me, what happened to you when you fell off a bus? And then what happened after they fell off the bus is exactly different to what anyone, and everybody's got that in them. They sometimes don't realize, by God, you have to tease it out, pull it out, tweezer it out, but it's in there. Everyone's got, no, that, the, the cliche, everyone's got a book in them is drivel. Everyone's got a magic short story in them. And one of the things you touched upon earlier was how much the landscape of, at least let's say fictional storytelling has changed with the emergence of video games and, and with how many films and TV shows are being produced in such volume at this, at this time and the role they play in society. Most of them are rubbish. <laughs> you turn on Netflix at night, I rarely last more than 10 minutes with most of them. What do you think it is that literature can fulfill or where can it compete against those other mediums? That's, with a, good, other that's a good point. You can't. You get on with what you do and pray. Um, millions are poured into films and you and I have seen so many second-rate movies you wonder how they spent 50 million on that it's as bad as you wonder sometimes how you spent 50 million on a second-rate footballer but you want and so I can't really answer that question I I I love the film world I adore it, and there are moments of sheer genius in it. But, my God, there's a lot of rubbish around, isn't there? <laughs> and something as well that I'd like, I'm actually very interested to hear your thoughts on, is there's so many bad film adaptations of, of books. Ah. And great books. I mean, for example, I really, I really loved Captain Crowley's Mandolin, the book. You read, but, sorry, I'm so sorry. Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Oh, yeah. Um, but the film just cut everything out of it, just didn't really translate over. Yes, well, that's because you're too clever and too oversensitive. <laughs> but you're sadly right, because that's got marvellous innuendo, hasn't it? And it's yes. got marvellous undercurrents. Exactly. And they miss them. Yeah, yes. I agree with you. 
Most authors complain about that. Uh, most authors complain that, that they don't capture what you wanted to tell the whole world. Uh, certainly when the BBC made Not A Penny More, Not A Penny Less, I thought it was rubbish. Uh, and now I've got uh, other people. I've got uh, Bronson wanting to do uh, Not A Penny More, Not A Penny Less. And he's got such sensitivity, I think there might be a chance. But you, it's a very good point you make. I suspect most of, or I suspect most authors are disappointed with the product that they see on television or on film. Well, because by nature, they have to cut out so much yes. of volume and content. Well, in Cain and Abel, and I can't complain because uh, it was immensely successful. I mean, 100 million people watched Cain and Abel. I'm not complaining, but they left the war out. <laughs> and they couldn't afford it. I said, what do you mean you can't afford it? They said, Jeffrey, it would be two more hours and it would cost us X million. <laughs> and do you think there's any, do any examples spring to mind of really great film adaptations of great, great, great film adaptations of great novels? It's all quiet on the Western front. Right, yeah. Was both a brilliant, brilliant book and brought me to tears as a film. But that was the acting. And I loved the idea of seeing the war through German eyes, yes. through a young German soldier, a decent good man who was being forced into war. Such a brilliant and simple idea. But then Eva Maria remarked that the author was totally, totally brilliant. It's rare. The truly great pieces of work on television or radio are often original. I mean, Mr. Sorkin is one of the most beautiful writers we have ever seen. I don't know if he could write a novel. It's an interesting, interesting comment. But in my view, The West Wing is the best television series I have ever seen. And why is it the best television series? Not just because I'm mad about politics. He writes so beautifully. It's a privilege. I remember my son once in a play we went to in the West End of London was applauding and applauding. And I said, who are you applauding? He said, the actor, Dad, he's great. I said, no. You're applauding the author who gave him the words to deliver. And are there any books you're reading at the moment? That, that means, is there anything on your bedside table that's particularly intriguing a, or inspiring? I tell you, that's a very clever question for several levels. It's a book a year, usually. I loved uh, Gentleman in Moscow. I thought that was outstanding. Beautiful piece of storytelling, beautiful piece of writing. I thought um, The Tattooist of Auschwitz was very moving. Uh, if I get a book a year that I feel that way about, I, I'm reading so many books now that I put down after 30 pages. I think at the age of 82, I cannot waste my time on this any longer. And I'm leaving theatres halfway through now in the interval. I cannot, I haven't got that much longer to live that I can sit here seeing, reading this awful book or seeing this. And then occasionally you get a piece of magic mm. and you just, you sit back and revel in it and think, this is beautifully written and what a privilege it is to read it. And when is that moment usually where you, you realize that this, is a, this has got my attention, this is going to keep my attention? And when you're reading a new book, how long into it do you usually know? How far into the book? In Stefan Zweig's Beware of Pity, when I entered the room, he was sitting on the other side of the table. I was very disappointed because he was too far away to speak to. 
Every one of us in the room knew he was a national hero. When I left and picked up my coat, he stood by my side and said, May I walk home with you? And I said, That would be a great honor, sir. May I ask why? He said, Yes. It's time someone knew the true story. That's genius. And that's Stefan Zweig. The answer to your question is you can know in six, eight, ten lines if it's genius. And the remarkable thing about that section you just read out is so often I think writers are inclined to overwrite. Mm. There's such a beautiful uh, economy to that writing, to that passage you've just... Well, it's a, that's a, a shrewd observation because there are a lot of very clever people who are very well-educated and very well-read and think it's their duty to describe your glasses, your beard, the piece of thing around your neck, the, the color. And I couldn't describe the color of the garment you're wearing. It's a green, but I wouldn't be sure which green. And then they go on for, and you think, wait a minute, what, what, why am I, why am I, tell me a story. <laughs> I try to do it. I slip it in so your beard would be on one page, your glasses would be on another page, the green would be on another page, so that I would hope they would come along and say, I know this guy, I've got him, I've got him, I, I dislike. And they entered the room, there was a square table, three of them sitting around it, two microphones and a man, to, oh, come on. They entered the room and he said, sit down, I've only got 15 minutes, you go in. Then you throw in a word about he stared at his glasses and thought, who the hell does he think he's speaking to? Then you move on. Then you do it again. You don't. Oh, well, good point you make. Because the former <laughs> that just now, it almost sounds like a shopping list. Yes. Whereas the second is a yes. human is a human universal yes. story that it doesn't matter where you're from, what yes. culture you're from. And, and that's the great secret. That's why R.K. Narayan, the Indian author, is a genius. He can do a short story about a tax collector living in a small village, picking up your point, and you think, I've got to turn the page. He's not a master lord conquering the world, swearing and killing. He's a little tax collector who's having troubles at home. But you've got to turn the page. And can I ask, do you read much nonfiction these days? I... Stefan Zweig, again, is considered to be a, a genius. His, he was born, of course, at the time, he was 30 at the time of Hitler coming to power. Uh, he lives living in Austria, so he had a vision of it from Austria. And he wrote a book about uh, what it was like to live through that period. He then went to America and committed suicide because he thought Hitler was going to win the war. So we only got two novels, and we got half a dozen nonfiction books, and we got half a dozen longish short stories. Uh, I've read every word the man has ever written. Um, but his uh, uh, really serious people say to me, Jeffrey, stop telling everyone to read the fiction. His non-fiction is brilliant. I'm currently reading, and I'll some more of today, I'm currently reading Ben McIntyre's Colditz. And being, I was a schoolboy, um, I was born in the war, a schoolboy afterwards, so I thought these men who escaped from Colditz were all heroes. What a wonderful bunch they were. It turns out they weren't. And it's a, a, an amazing piece of non-fiction, which I'm enjoying immensely. 
That brings us to the end of this episode of Books of My Life, Season 2. I hope you found it as insightful as I did. If you're interested in hearing more conversations like this, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Gami, or your favorite podcasting platform. Next week, I sit down with renowned chef Bobby Chin. Stay tuned for more captivating conversations and gripping stories. This episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Dua Farid. I'm your host, Harith Al-Bastani. Thanks for listening. <laughs>